we're in a series, um, The House That God Built. Remember last year we started in Leviticus? It's one of my favorite memories I shared in all my classes. I tell my students, I, I teach in a doctoral program, so my, teachers, my students are all young pastors. I told my church a year ago, we're going to do a series on Leviticus. And afterwards, several people come up and said, have you uh, actually read Leviticus? <laughs> and I said, yes, have you? And so um, I, I told the church, give me two weeks. And if you're bored, we'll, we'll stop and move to something else. And uh, we went through the book. And I argued there that uh, <coughs> Leviticus is the holiness code of the Old Testament. It is the primary book of theology. The books before that are telling the history of them getting to Mount Sinai as slaves where God begins to form them as a nation. And the books after that are the wanderings and all of the historical books, for example. Kings, Chronicles, Samuel tell us uh, whether or not the kings obeyed the law. The wisdom literature expresses the law in poetic and figurative language. That's why we love, for example, uh, Psalms so much, and even Proverbs, wisdom literature. Then you have the prophets, which are kind of doing this to the nation because they're not obeying the law, but pointing them forward to something even better, a new covenant, because they they realize they couldn't keep the old one. Okay? So Leviticus actually becomes a blueprint. That's the metaphor I presented to you of the people of God, what he envisioned all along for his people. You see, God didn't create the mess. We did. Okay? We could blame Adam, but the truth is every one of us would have done it. He showed dignity to us by allowing us to uh, choose to obey him or not. It's called free will. And that's at the heart of human dignity, I believe. And so they chose to disobey, as any of us would have done. And so there's a mess. So the way God tried, the way God chose, not tried, the way he chose to solve the problem was through creating for him for himself a holy people. So using an old metaphor now, here's God, and he created a kaleidoscope of nations. All the different colors, ethnicities, languages, and those are the, a lot of the people I go every year to teach. And then he chose one to reach the rest. They weren't any better. In fact, he said, you were the smallest of the nations. Romans 9, 10, 11, you shouldn't be surprised that you sinned. If you had succeeded, you would have gotten the glory. So God, it didn't matter which nation he chose, they would have all failed. So he chose one, the Jewish people, to reach the rest because of Abraham's faith. And so um, they did not do that. They took this law and it was their treasure. And they they thought of it and they're like, you're not like us Gentiles, so stay out. Okay, God's plan all along was that this people group would reach the rest. And he said in Exodus 19 at the base of Mount Sinai, just before he gave him Leviticus, the covenant which we've read many times. If you obey me fully, I will make you my prized possession. No God in the ancient world ever said that. You'll be my prized possession and I will be your God. And so the subtitle to Leviticus is that it's a love story. It's a story of God taking a people who are slaves, turning them into priests. That was part of the covenant. I will make you a kingdom of priests to reach the rest of the world. Sadly, the nation did the opposite. Uh, But fortunately, Jesus did not. He was Jewish, and he fulfilled the promise in Exodus 19 that opened the door 
for the Gentiles. But the Gentiles were included all along in the promise because even Solomon, and when he dedicated the, temp- the temple in 1 Kings 8, has this wonderful long prayer when he culminates the glory of the Lord filled the temple and everybody had to back up. It was just so much. So in the, right in the middle of the prayer, this wonderful long prayer, he says, and God, when the foreigner comes, that's you, by the way, the Gentiles, when the foreigner comes because they've heard of your great name uh, and they will indeed hear of your great name, then listen to their prayers and bless them so that they will know that you are the one true God. You see, from the beginning, God's heart was to reach the entire creation that had, that had chosen uh, to not follow him. They chose an idolatry instead. So he chose one nation to reach the rest. And so now, the Leviticus lays out that picture, that blueprint. Every chapter, I believe, of Leviticus changes world history. Every one. Okay, um, the first seven chapters on sacrifice. All the ancient nations, they offered sacrifices to appease the gods. And what is Leviticus? How does it start? If any of you want to make a sacrifice. So the ancient nations wanted to appease God. And so what Israel, I mean, what Leviticus says is, no, it's an invitation to come into a relationship. That's what it is. It's an invitation. Here's how you do it if you want to offer sacrifice. So when we get to the chapter on blood, for example, it says life is in the blood. Here's what the ancient nations thought. And you can go back and listen to the earlier recordings. That when a woman gave birth, there's child, there's blood, uh, gave childbirth, there's blood involved. That's how evil and demons were released into the world. And so when a woman got close to childbirth, get her right out of the village as fast as you can. And so they, they thought blood was bad. And, um, and Leviticus comes along and says, no. Blood is good. Can you imagine trying to explain the sacrifice of Jesus and communion if we didn't have that one chapter? That chapter changed world history on how blood is viewed. So every chapter of Leviticus changes world history. So my argument has been that Leviticus is a blueprint for the people of God, what God envisioned all along. Not in the rules and the commands, but in the reason why and the departure from the world the world system. Each one moved them away from what the ancient nations thought. So this year, we're looking at Ephesians, the first part of the year, the house that God built, because Ephesians is the story of this house, this building. A blueprint needs a builder. It doesn't turn into something unless you have it. And that's what the new covenant was all about, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. We have a builder that shows up. And all of a sudden, we have a house being built. So Ephesians, he calls it a spiritual house. We're all being added to this spiritual house. Peter calls it a spiritual temple. Paul says, don't you know that all of your bodies belong to this one spiritual temple? Therefore, you know, glorify God in your bodies. Take care of your bodies. And so the, the, the house is now being built because the builder showed up. And so Ephesians gives us a glimpse of what that house looks like. Now, I argued last week with Ephesians that uh, I take a, a different kind of view. I think that Ephesians is a circular letter. I don't actually think it was written directly to Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the churches, but it was designed to go to all the churches of the ancient world. And the reason I say that is because it's unlike every other letter that Paul wrote. There's no personal references, for example, in the last chapter or two, which there typically are. Say hello to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And Ephesus is one of Paul's home bases. He spent over two years there. In fact, when he went back to Jerusalem to be tried toward the end of life, he stopped and the elders, drew, they went down to the, the ocean, the shorefront, to spend time with him because he said, you won't see my face anymore, and they wept together. And he warned them about the coming wolves. And um, so this was a church that he knew intimately well. 
but yet there's no personal reference. And your NIV, or whatever translation, probably says this, NIV does, in the footnotes, that uh, the word in Ephesus, in verse 1, to the people, holy people in Ephesus, or to the saints in Ephesus, that word is not there in the earliest manuscripts. It's blank. To the holy people or the saints in, it may be the one place in Scripture where we get the complete inspiration. It was a circular letter designed to be used among all the churches, so he left it blank. So when Laodicea got theirs, they wrote in to the church in Laodicea. And in Colossians, he refers to the letter of Laodicea. I believe it was this letter. Read the letter to the Laodiceans. So we can fill in the blanks to the saints at Dillon Community Church. And it relates to us. So this letter gives us a picture of this house, this institution, this building that's being built in the Lord. And so I'm going to read it to you. Okay? I'm just going to read the Thanksgiving, the prayer, I mean. And I want you to think. Last week we talked about that uh, the first characteristic of this house is blessing. And it starts out, says in ENIV, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. It's actually, blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us. And we talked last week, the very first characteristic of this house is that it's a house or a building of blessing. And there we talked about the fact that God is our blessing. But guess what? We are God's blessing. He says on down through there that... Uh, we might be for the praise of his glory, verse 12, for example, and other places, that God is proud of us. We are his blessing to us. One of the questions I love to ask people is, why did God save you? I've asked probably every classroom for 15, 20 years. Why did God save you? The standard answer is to glorify him. Well, there's a problem with that. Think about it this way. If I say to you, um, I'm going to have a child so he'll bless me or he'll glorify me. That's just narcissistic. The Bible actually answers it in this book, and we're going to get to it. But he starts off with telling us we are to be his praise and his glory. We are his blessing, just like he is our blessing. Therefore, we are to be a blessing to others. Thank you for your opening words, Rob, about your whole view of somebody changes when you, when you start out being thankful for who they are in Christ, not who they were in the world. Second Corinthians five sixteen. We no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. You're in Christ or you're not. If you're in Christ, all that's left is a glorification and the cleanup of the sin. You're already part of the the new new creation. If anyone was in Christ, the very next verse, they are part of the new creation. And so we evaluate people very differently now than because of that. And so Ephesians is a book that's talking about being this kind of blessing. Well, what this Paul's prayer reveals is a, a, the second characteristic of this house is that it's a house of thanksgiving. So just sit back and listen. You can read it. It'll be up there if you want. But immerse yourself and just listen to the overflowing love and gratitude that Paul has. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith... In the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people. That's how he talks in First Thessalonians, by the way. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, <clears throat> remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know, the, uh, know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and in his, com- and his com- incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. That's why I keep saying don't worry about politics. Don't worry about it. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can you feel it? Can you just sense the love, the thankfulness flowing out, the gratitude? So I picture him writing this circular letter to be read to all the churches. He had donated, he had, he had dedicated his life to reaching the Gentiles for Christ. That was his life's mission. Now he's got these churches planted all throughout Asia Minor, the Greek provinces, the Roman, uh, you know, Italy, the Roman states. He had dedicated his life and he has all these Gentile churches growing up now. And I just picture him sitting back with just joy, overflowing joy. You know, I... Um, uh, you know, I teach with Eagle Projects overseas every year, several countries. And uh, so I've been doing it for 20-something years. And so we, I was talking with the president, and uh, he said, you know, in, in Nepal, we, uh, there's 75 political districts, and we've uh, been involved in supporting out around 470, 480 churches. I said, man, that's so fantastic over the last 30 years. And he said, right. And I did. I went back and looked, and he looked at me, and he said, and you were involved in equipping over half those pastors. I just wept. You know, as pastors, we don't pay attention to that. I don't have a tally sheet. Let's see, I have 93 here today. That's going in the annals of heaven. Whew, 93 more. Sweet. I don't think that way. Most pastors, they shouldn't if they do. And to find out when you look back over a lifetime that you've had impact, that's what Paul's doing here. He's looking back to all these churches. I just picture him sitting there, looking back to one of the prison epistles, sitting there, uh, reflecting on all the churches that are growing and springing up. And, you know, we have our group, but we're a sending church. We have anywhere from two to 5,000 visitors every year, depending on the year. We're a sending church. We have people that go all over the world from here. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know. Maybe in glory, God will show us as a church how he used us in that way. But can you sense that deep, that deep love, that thankfulness, that gratitude for who God is and what he's done Does that describe our church? Is that us? When you think of Dillon Community Church, do you think if there's a church that is a grateful church? It should be a defining characteristic, gratitude, thankfulness. So let's go back to Leviticus for just a minute because I'm going to connect the dots between here and this. In Leviticus 7, in Leviticus 3, he talked about the Shalom, the peace, the fellowship offering. Then in Leviticus 7, he says, if you make that offering as a way of saying thank you, then here's what you're supposed to do. Take a bull down to the temple, slit its throat, 
Take all the guts, put them on the altar. That's what God gets. Give us the steak to the priest, take care of them. And you have to eat the whole bull by sundown. Remember that? And what did we say? It can't be done. It's not possible. What's the implication? It's a barbecue. Bring all of your friends. It's about community. That's what it is. So here's what happens. I say to you, hey, I just had a brand new granddaughter. You know, or, you know, they say we just had a brand new son. We're going to offer our finest bull as a way of saying thank you, God. We want you all to join us in this, this sacrifice of thanksgiving. No other religion had this. None in the whole world. That we would get together as a community and we would eat a bull and say, God, thank you for your wonderful blessing. That's the heart of of a the thanksgiving sacrifice, the offering. Well, that's what he's talking about here. So listen to it again. Listen to some of these words. I'm not going to read the whole thing. For this reason, ever since I heard about all of your faith, we need the Texas version, y'all. These are all plurals. I have not stopped giving, and all of your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for all of you, remembering all of you in my prayers. This is about community. His thanksgiving prayer is a prayer that's rooted in not only a deep passion for God and a deep love, but it's rooted in a love for a people group. Remember, a group that's going to reach the rest of the world. It's a community. That's the first thing to see there. And now all of a sudden it makes sense when he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, for example, uh, in everything, in everything, not most things, in everything, give thanks to God. In everything. Hebrews 13, when Jesus had to go outside the camp, become unclean, it says, let us join him outside the camp. Therefore, let us offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We continually lift that up together as a church. So now you understand these other passages. It's rooted in Leviticus, thanksgiving, and we are to give thanks to God and everything. There's really no such thing, I said this last week, as affliction and calamity and all that. If, if, if God gave Satan permission, you would already be dead. It's that simple. Okay? That's Job. God, Satan can only do what God allows. And so he uses what we think of as calamity, trials, affliction. He uses it for one of two purposes, to shape you or to use you, usually both. So last week I told you when I went through all the trials I had to get to Kenya, there was a bunch of them, any one of which that would have kept me there, grounded. I wouldn't have made it to Kenya, right? And you're all focusing on, oh, wow, I can't believe it. And I said, you're focusing on the wrong thing. When I head to the airport, I don't know what I'd do if there weren't any trials. Because it tells me that I'm getting ready to do something of value because Satan comes right after me and does everything he can to stop. So I'm at this stage, 20-something years later, when the trials start coming, I just say, bring it. Because I get to watch God work. What's the worst that happened? I turn around and come home. Okay, it's not that big a deal. It's so funny to me that the getting to these countries takes enormous effort to me, uh, God getting involved. Coming home is a piece of cake. There's never a trial on the way home. Never miss a flight. My luggage always makes it back. You know, I get great food. Don't get sick. It always is on the way there that this happens. And so this is afflictions and all this stuff you have to understand. And by the way, the same thing is true for sin. I've asked countless thousands of people over the years, when's the last time you remember God punishing you for sin? Nobody can remember. That's not the way God works. He uses the trials and sins and calamities to shape you and therefore use you, to prepare you. 
You've got to get used to that idea. You've got to get used to it. Because you become useful to the Lord for that reason. Okay. The cool thing about this verse, I mean, this Thanksgiving prayer here is just, just like the first section. It's one sentence in Greek. Judy D and I laugh about the Greek. It's one sentence. Okay. Paul, when he gets going, he can't stop. So when he gets to chapter two, we're going to see the same thing. By the time we get done with chapter two, I think we have four sentences in Greek. And they go on and on and on. The first one is 14 verses. And this one goes from verse 15 to 23. It's just one sentence. It just shows you Paul's excitement as he's writing as fast as he can write. It's just flowing out. This love, this gratitude, this gratefulness both to the Lord and to you for who you're becoming and for the way you allow the Lord to use you. Okay, now let's look at the first two verses. We're going to move quickly through this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Okay, pause. When I was coming to Christ a number of years ago in the Navy, the guy I was rooming with, one of my best friends even to today, uh, he wasn't interested. I'm trying to process with him my thoughts. It took me three years. I, I, I was a skeptic. I wasn't sure. It took me three years of asking a whole lot of hard questions before I finally turned to Christ. And um, he wasn't interested in discussion. I made him listen. So um, we went on through nuclear prototype, and we went into a the nuclear program together and served. And he went his way, I went my way, but we stayed in touch. We fell in love with a woman who was not walking by, the, in her, by her faith. At that time, she'd walked away. Well, eventually she came back. Well, I came to Christ. So she and I banded together to trap him. In other words, we prayed. At the 20-year mark, I won't ever forget it, I was at the gym working out. And I said, thank you, God, for answering my prayer. Who? You know, my friend Rusty came to know the Lord. I can cross him off the list. And all of a sudden, I remember this. Ever since I heard of your faith, and it floored me. I'm crossing him off the list at the wrong time. You see, there's no command or example of praying for the unsaved for the sake of salvation. Think about that. Every exhortation to prayer has to do with believers. And here I was getting ready to take him off the list instead of putting him on the list. Is it wrong to pray for the unsaved? Absolutely not. If it was, God would tell us. What's the priority with the unsaved in Scripture? Investing into their lives and loving them and caring for them. That's a priority in the New Testament. And sadly, it realized I was guilty and a whole bunch of my friends and some of you of copying out on my responsibility. I'd rather pray for somebody to get in their lives. That's a whole lot easier. Well, there's no example, no command for that. But there's a lot of commands about loving and teaching and helping them understand. So my advice to you is keep praying for your unsafe, but don't use that as an excuse. Get as deep invested into their life as God has let, will let you get. So the question I have at this point is, who are you praying for? Tell me, who's the believer that you feel this way about? That when you wake up in the morning, you say, God, thank you for this person. And who's the unbeliever that's on your heart that you're praying for that you say, God, give me a chance to love them even more? Who is that? Well, he goes on, verse 17 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So knowing God, this is his prayer. Knowing God and his blessing. You see this word knowing? This is a powerful word in the Old Testament. It's a word that communicates such a deep intimacy. It's the word that they use when they talk about a marital sexual relationship. Okay? The older translations, in fact, say, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Isaac knew Rebecca. Abraham knew Sarah. That's the word. This word knowledge, to know, is about a deep, passionate intimacy. And that's what he's talking about here, that you may know. He says in verse 17, so that you may know him better. And then in verse 18, so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And so this is a part of of drawing to Christ. You cannot draw closer to the Lord, nor conform to his image, to the image of Christ without knowing him. And the know he's talking about is not just not a head knowledge. This is a deep knowledge that actually generates who you are, who you are. Um, Then he goes on verse 18. Um, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, there it is again, the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glory and glorious inheritance. A couple of thoughts about that. Enlightenment has to do with becoming aware. You can see what the world cannot see. You can because of the Holy Spirit. So I've said the church, you are the conduit, the gateway between the world and the kingdom. I love how Rob does it. I've used this in my classroom now. We're the filament between the world and the kingdom. We light up when we have our hands in both, both pots. We become the filament that lights up. And that's what enlightenment is. We know what no one else knows. Then he talks about a hope. The hope in Christianity is not a, a, a possibility or a probability. It's a certainty. If anyone is in Christ, they are the new creation. They are part of the new creation. You see, our hope is certain. He said, my prayer is that you would come to realize that because it is a statement of fact. You belong now. You are in the family. You're part of the chosen. Okay? And he uses that word. Next, a calling. Do you realize that God is the one that called you into this deep relationship? I don't have the power to convict you, to redeem you. That's part of the calling. Or transform you. That's part of the predestination. I don't have the ability to do that. That's uniquely the role of the Holy Spirit. So you're sitting here today blessed because of God's work. The triune work of God in your lives. To call you, to convict you, to redeem you, to transform you, to saturate you with his love. That's what he's talking about here. And then finally you have an inheritance. You know what inheritance is? It's a legal passing off of something. It belongs to you. In, in uh, uh, Numbers, eight, uh, Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophehad, they were given land as an inheritance. The first women in world history to be given land to own. They were given it as an inheritance. They could pass it off to whoever they wanted when they died. It's theirs. And he says in the first chapter that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the word that's used of a transaction. We receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. It's permanent. It's ours. It's ours. So what does your sin do for you? What your sin does is gives God every opportunity to reshape you. That's what it does. 
He's not afraid of your sin, not at all. That's why I've said if you're stuck in your sin, don't stay there. Come talk to me. Okay, I'm not going to read verse 19 to 21, but he talks about the great power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you realize that everything that happens to you is because of that power to raise someone else from the dead? Is there anything better than that? To have somebody like God watching out for you, using that incredible power in everything that happens so that he conclude, can conclude with this. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We have a protector and we have a filler. Think about what God has filled you with. His spirit. Starting off. Then he's filled you with a gift. A spiritual gift for a reason. So that you can serve with joy. Then he's filled you with the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. No wonder he's thankful. No wonder. The more you realize about what God has done in each of your lives, how can you not be grateful for the God that no other religion has anything like this? None whatsoever. No wonder his overflowing, he starts writing and he can't quit. He forgets about commas and periods. He just goes and goes and goes because of that deep and passionate gratefulness. So I asked last week, if, if blessedness, being blessed is a, uh, being a blessing is a, a characteristic of the church, a defining characteristic, are we a church of blessing? So now let me ask it this week. Are we a church of thanksgiving? Or are we more worried about politics, pandemics, things like that? I've said over and over and over again, if you're living in fear and frustration and panic and confusion, that just means you're a little too far away from the Lord, just a little bit. Let's go have coffee. Let's get you moving back this way. Father, thank you for your goodness. We have so many things to be grateful for. Lord, um, we can't even name them. It's beyond our ability. But if we sit down and think, we can come up with a list very long in a very short period of time. So we'll just say thank you for being such a good God to us. In your son's name, amen.